Hey friends, welcome to the Thrive Like a Parent podcast. You know those parents who look like they've got it all together? Yep, that's not me. I'm Dr. Brooke Weinstein, mom, widow, and neuroscience expert on all things sensory and emotional regulation. Yep, that's right. I'm here to get down and dirty on the truth behind parenting, education, burnout, neuroscience, widowhood, and the shit show we call life. So come join me for conversations with thought leaders, doctors, and women just like you who aren't afraid to speak the truth and help you find that silver lining between the to-do lists, shit shows, and chaos of parenthood. If you are craving the answers to finally find that sweet spot between chaos and calm, pull up a seat and listen in as I take you from burnt out and surviving to finally thriving. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Thrive Like a Parent podcast. Today, we are going to talk about feeling like you are roommates with your partner. And far too often, I hear this and see this over and over and over. To be honest, I would say that that's somewhat of how I felt with Jonathan towards the end of our partnership. Now, our partnership was over 12 years. So I would say it felt that way for many years. There were high moments, but it absolutely got into that space of feeling like a roommate. And it's so incredibly easy to do. It's so incredibly easy to slip into that. And it's actually super normal like more than you would think. And the craziest part is that no one really talks about it. Everyone wants to put on their best face and on the outside show that they've got it all together and they're doing super well and you're thick as thieves and thriving, right? What goes on in our own home within the walls of our own home, we don't necessarily talk about all the time. So what does it mean even like defined, right? Like what does it mean to think about, I kind of think I'm at like roommate status with my partner. I want you to think of it as when things get a little too comfortable and both of you start living kind of in a formula or robotic even way. Maybe there's so many routines and habits that start to set in and you can fall into this rut of like eating in the same places, sleeping, right? The same way. And, and, loss of intimacy and, you know, work and then repeat, 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 repeat over and over and over and over and over again. So I talk about this a lot with my clients. I see this most often, the shift from partnership to roommates when we get into what I like to call the decade of hell. (laughs) It is hard. The first 10 years of our kiddos' lives, and look, every year of their lives is brings on challenges and journeys that you never thought would ever happen, right? But you know, you go from coexisting with one human who you could not wait to spend the rest of your life with and said, I do, and just knew this person would be your person to having spit up and vomit all over you while running around trying to chase your child who's going through potty training, right? For the three days that they're naked all over the house and then they pooped in the backyard and then, you know, they're wetting their bed at night and then they're projectile vomiting because they're sick. And then you have to cancel work or this or like, uh, even saying some of those things may bring you into a tailspin of 
yep, that feels like me. Like that's my life over and over and over and over and over. Rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And I felt the shift for sure within our marriage and partnership when Jonathan and I had children. Now, I watched and observed and saw how the model for me was, it was a very patriarchal family style that I lived in. My dad was the breadwinner. My mom was the stay-at-home mom. And that they stayed in their lanes. And I saw how my mom took care of my sister and I and my dad in different ways. And my mom told me, she was like, Brooke, if you start doing something for your partner, they will always expect that you do those things. And I can even think back and remember how before Jonathan and I had kids, we like loved going to the grocery together and we would walk up and down the aisles and pick our meals and talk and all that. It was like an activity in the afternoon on the weekend. I'm not kidding you. I can count on one hand the amount of times that Jonathan and I went to the grocery once we had kids together. It didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And that shift completely takes place over time. So when I met Jonathan, I was just absolutely head over heels. I was like, this is my human. This is my person. Like, this is meant to be. We get each other. We understand each other. This is for a lifetime. And I was in graduate school. Jonathan was working. And he eventually shifted into graduate school during our time of, let's say, courtship before he got ma- he and I got married. And I had the capacity to go to the grocery and like cook us meals while he got home from work and worked out. And then we would have a glass of wine and sit and talk for hours. And I very much enjoyed doing these things for Jonathan. And I wanted to take on, like I showed my love to him through doing, through caregiving, through supporting and being like, sure, I can do that for you. Like, yeah, I would love to to do that for you. And I love doing it. Don't get me wrong. Like I loved doing it. And our relationship hands down worked, hands down worked before kids. Now what shifted once we had children was I was then being pulled in a million different directions. I owned a business at that point. I had a preemie, two preemies, but the first one popped out. And, you know, I'm now in the hospital 24-7 for three weeks while my kiddo is sitting, lying in a crib with things hooked up to him. I'm still trying to make it and keep our business running and also taking care of Jonathan because he also wasn't doing that well emotionally at that time. But I just kept going. I will never forget. This is actually a really hard story for me to tell, but I've also told it to some. So I probably won't get choked up. But um, I remember coming home from the hospital. The night I came home from the hospital, I was devastated. Imagine waiting months and months and months going through bed rest and, and hell to make sure that your baby is safe. You have a baby, your baby makes it, your baby is safe, and they discharge you from the hospital, but there's no baby. Like no baby comes home with you. It was the most empty feeling I can ever, ever remember. Like I can vividly remember that evening. I know what I ate that evening. I know how I felt that evening. I still was walking like I had a horse between my legs. Like it was, it was devastating. And Jonathan and I had an awkward 
master bathroom in our house in New Orleans. And when you pulled one of the drawers out, he couldn't get around to his sink. So he was using kind of like the Jack and Jill-ish bathroom that was going to end up being Charlie's and eventually Eli's. And I said, Jonathan, we're going to put the shower stuff or the bath stuff for Charlie in your bathroom because that's where we're going to bathe him. And he was like, no, we're not. And I was like, yeah, we are. Like that's the closest to his room. And the tub, we had tubs in both of them. I was like, the tub is lower in the bathroom that you're currently using, not the master. So to reach over and make sure and bathe our child to protect them and make sure they're safe, it's better to do it in that tub. And he was like, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Let me see. And I could barely walk. And I remember he was like, just bend down, like get down on your knees. Let's see if it's actually the same. I don't know what the hell propelled me to do it, but I did it. And I got down on my knees and I was like, look, it's harder for me to reach over. And I can remember as I was standing up in excruciating pain from just pushing out a baby out of my hoo-ha, I was in tears. I, I honestly will never ever forget that moment. And Jonathan was so used to, and it sounds like a horrific story in like bashing Jonathan, but it was, it's really an example of, he was just used to me taking care of what he needed and in the way that he needed it. And Jonathan really had some highly cleanly tendencies. I don't think I'd call it OCD, but he was a rage cleaner for sure. But that is, I mean, every surface had to be clean. And that is how he managed his own anxiety and stress. And he wanted that bathroom to remain spotless and clean for himself, for his mental health and function, all the different things. He was so used to me saying, sure, honey, if that's what you need, like, great, we'll do this. But that was a need. And we now had a human in our home, a baby, who we had to make sure was safe in a bathtub, right? And I could reach over and hold him and all the different things and make sure he didn't roll over and all of that, right? And it it just kind of continued from there in a sense of I've spoken with many, 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 many couples who, you know, for the first child, things don't quite shift because you can tag team. You've got them, then you've got them, then you, then you, then you, right? And then you're like, oh, thank goodness I have a break. Hands down, the pattern that I've heard from most spouses is the second child is a doozy because it's now, we're not tag teaming. It's, hey, Jonathan, I'm going to go breastfeed Eli. You're on duty with Charlie. So there was no like respite care. It was all hands on deck. When you get into the rhythm of, the baby's crying or the baby needs me or I need to make dinner or I need to pump or I need to breastfeed or up oh, now it's time to go to work. and like, okay, bye. Like you can slip into the roommate genre of life so, so easily, so easily. And you know, I've seen a multiple of reasons that this happens. Yeah. So a lot of times we feel like roommates with our partners because either we're stuck in a rut, we're stuck in our usual routine. Maybe we don't see our friends like we used to anymore. There's zero breathing room when you live with a human. Now that I don't live with a partner and I very much have felt the difference between what it's like to 
have a partner for many, many years and now not, I very much come to the realization of this is hard. Like this is hard to live with a human 24 seven. Think of how hard it is to live with your children 24 seven. We love them. We're not going to kick them out, but at the same time, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to always support and help and manage and do all the things for our children. It's the same thing for our spouse, right? Like there's absolutely zero breathing room when you are frustrated or angry or in, in a fight even, right? Having a disagreement. It's not like you can gain that space and say, Hey, honey, I'm going to head over to the, you know, Airbnb that we own and I'm going to take some space and we will get through this, but let's just, let's decompress, let's process and I'll see you in a day. Like that, who, no, like I don't know. Like mm -mm. that doesn't happen. We don't have that luxury. And while we're at it, you know, that idea of quote, going to bed angry, never go to bed angry with your, your spouse. If you push and push and push for a resolution and go down the rabbit hole of like, we need to fix this right now, what that is, is your brain, again, like I always say, craving that structure, stability, and control of, we need to fix this and be back on the same page. Your brain may not be ready for that, actually. And by talking about it more, might get you down the rabbit hole even more. Taking a time out and a break. Because when you're spewing things at each other and you're tit for tatting, that's literally your amygdala. That's not even your brain online. You're heightened. You're going at it. And by being able to take a deep breath, come back down to that regulated state, you will have a much healthier, productive conversation. Might it feel uncomfortable? Yeah, you co-regulate. If you're sleeping in the same bed and you're feeling the angry energy or the frustration or the, ugh, might not feel so good but it is still a timeout to allow your brain to settle. Other reasons that we feel like roommates with our partners are changes in boundaries or loss of physical touch, yeah? Like if you are attempting to shift a dynamic within your relationship or your partnership, that may feel wildly uncomfortable for that partnership and you may start doing even your own thing and it might start to feel like roommates, yeah? And the loss of physical touch, I talk about being touched out all the time. So if you're touched out by your children, but then you get in bed and all your brain wants is a pitch black, dark room, zero, like do like no stimulation, like sensory deprivation, legit. Like you are craving the lack of like nothing. We don't want any, like, no, like if someone comes and touches you, you're going to be like, mm -mm. like, no, thank you. Like you're so revved. You're so overstimulated. There is no humanly way possible, you're going to be able to get in the mood, if you know what I mean, to actually enjoy that. That touch might feel like needles, like it's not going to feel good. So then if it continues to happen, you get into a roommate situation where you're like, we're not even intimate anymore. Like we don't enjoy touching and communicating and having conversations. We also get into this rut because sometimes we know so much about our partners and we are so familiar, we get overly comfortable that it kind of gets monotonous. Yeah. And if you're listening to this, like, yes, yes, yes. This isn't just you. I'm saying these things because there are patterns that over the course of me working with all my clients, I hear over and over. Think about it. Like you may not even be excited to greet your partner at the end of the day. You're just like, Hey hon, you're home. All right, great. Grab a kid. Let's go. There's, there's shit on the toilet over there. Can you help? Like whoop dee, you know, like it's not like, Oh my gosh, I'm, I can't tell you how excited I was. 
I would go to the market. I would get something. I would pick out a recipe. I had so much fun at that time of my relationship with Jonathan. We would cook. We would kiss. We would dance. Like we would have so much fun in the kitchen. It was so much fun. But you're exhausted and tired and maybe working your butt off to build the life that you're craving and wanting for your family. And bills go up as extracurriculars and school and tutors and diapers and extra food. And I've got two boys, like they eat it up. Like, and then the vacations, and then it's not just two flights. It's not two airline tickets. It's it's four or five or however many kids you have, right? So expenses go up. You've got more pressure. There's more on your plate. There's more stimuli around you. And so getting into that rut of feeling like roommates is fairly normal. You may even feel like you're living parallel lives, like there's some emotional distance, or there's even loss of appreciation or gratitude. That is such a big one. It's like we often don't recognize how important each of our roles are, no matter what we're doing. If you have a one-income household, oftentimes I find that it's such tit for tat and we don't recognize that both are needed and valued. We think, okay, you're home, whichever the partner's the one that's working, okay, you're home. Now it's time to step up as a parent. My job's not over, so neither is yours. But the amount of pressure that's being placed on the one who is working, it's, it's like the weight of the world. That'll keep you up at night. And thinking about the amount of years that you have to keep doing this, that's enough exhaustion to make you zone out on your phone all afternoon long and be like, I cannot function and listen to more whining. Now, if you are a two-income household, oftentimes I hear that there is still a, quote, default parent. And the resentment and anger is just, it just is like poison ivy. It just like a vine you cannot, you cannot get rid of or a weed. I got to tell you, I danced all through college. I found a way to dance in graduate school. And once I started working within my job and that nine to five or eight to five and put in the effort into my life and working and paying the mortgage and then thinking about babies, I didn't dance for many, many years. I probably picked it back up when Charlie was five. So four years ago. And even now, I don't get to do it as much as when I had a partner. So we're sometimes forced to abandon our own sense of self or life that we former had prior to kids. And now that I've kind of laid all this out, it's like, great. Yes, I'm there. I Like you keep giving tons and tons of examples. Oh boy, where is this going? Like, what do we do about it? Like, how can we shift the narrative? How can we change this? First and foremost, I need you to know that it it does take effort. It can't just be something that transpires overnight of like, I really don't want us to feel like roommates anymore. Great, me neither. Cool, let's do it. Like, it's one thing to say it, but it's another to do it. There's hands down three components to this to get out of that roommate mode. First and foremost, it's communication. Communication above all else. I don't think that we as a society recognize really 
the lack of communication within most of our partnerships and the lack of communication within our lives. And it's getting worse with social media and text messaging and emails and all the different things. Like it's not just verbal or written. It's verbal, it's written, it's computer, it's email, it's text, it's podcasts. It's, it's, there's tons of different ways of communicating these days. The amount of communication that you and your partnership should probably be having might feel so exhausting that you just shut down and not have it, or you fear the response or the defensiveness, or it hasn't gone well in the past. But the amount of communication that is required of a healthy relationship, it absolutely can be an, in, an entire new job. Like it, it literally could be a full-time job, like a, another career on top of all the other things, because there is so much to talk about. There is so much to converse and work through, especially when you have children. And so making time for that communication is key. And you may not feel like it. You may feel so resentful and angry and done and okay with that parallel life. But if you don't want to stay there, the communication needs to happen. But if you think about it, you may have a job, whether it's a full-time parent or a career, and parenting is a career, by the way, but you know what I mean. You also are trying and craving time for yourself. You also really crave community and want to maintain friendships with the individuals in your lives. You also really want to connect with your children and make sure that you have and spend time with them and focus on them, not just be present in terms of I'm in the room, but actually like focus in and interact and connect with them. And then on top of that, we've got family, extended family, friends, like all that, and then relationship. That is a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot for one person and human to manage and handle. But we are not recognizing how large of a task that is. And so we become, we become resentful because all, you know, Stacy does his work and I get no there's no time for me, but then Johnny's upset because Johnny, you know, has been waiting at home all day for you to come home. And, and then you, you say, I'm like, nope, I have nothing left. And sometimes when we're in this rut, we don't want to attempt to reconnect. We don't want to put that relationship first. We want to go have fun. We want to go to a concert with our friends or see a movie or like we, that's the last thing because it feels hard. Communication is hands down the number one place to start. Number one place to start. Number two is carving out time. And I'm sure you're thinking, great, you just told me to add more to my plate. Communication, that's exhausting. And now you're telling me to carve out time. I don't even have time for myself. I get it. Why do you think I called it the decade of hell? For a few years there, you literally don't even have your limbs. You, you don't even have your arms. You're, you're schwitzing because you're wearing a, a backpack and in the middle of summer because you've got 15,000 snacks, diapers and butt cream and, and a bottle and, and burp cloths and, oh, let's say they shit in their pants. So then you've got an extra set of clothing and like, and then you're holding the child and then you've got the stroller and the toys and the shakers and the this and the that. And oh my God, don't even get me started on how heavy all of that is. You are like, you're an octopus and you don't even know it. Like you're trying, you don't have eight tentacles, but you're trying. So then how to even carve out time, right? When you're like, I, like I, I don't even know what peace and quiet sounds like. 
Yes, again, it's effort. It is effort. I don't even care if you have date night at home where you get dressed up and you pop some popcorn, you have a movie on. Like you have to be able to carve out time. If you carve out time, the one requirement and homework I'm going to give you, I don't think I've ever given you homework on my podcast, but here it is. It has to be three hours plus. My rule of threes, and I've discussed this in many other podcasts, is that rule and why threes are so important. Let's say the first hour of attempting to reconnect with your partner, you're still halfway at home, halfway on to date night, and you still have the running to-do list for work tomorrow in your head or maybe for Monday, or you're still thinking about the kids and how they cried when you left or worried about the, the new sitter at home or whatever it is, yeah? But you're, you're half in, half out. You're, your brain is shifting and transitioning from one experience to the next. Now, the second hour is really maybe even uncomfortable, maybe even like twiddling your thumbs. Like, I don't know what to talk about. Like, this is kind of odd. We're, we're kind of sitting in silence. It's that awkward dinner where you're like, I have nothing to say to them. That's possibly the second hour because your brain has shifted out of the to-do mode but it doesn't quite know how to lean in and come back online to go into connection mode. Now, I want you to see what happens by the end of the evening, maybe by the end of dessert. I am so observant. I absolutely love watching big tables and groups go to dinner, meaning like when I'm involved. If you notice, the conversations when they first start it's the person right next to you, the person across from you, and, and you're kind of having a ton of different mini conversations throughout the table. But if you watch and you observe, by the time you're getting dessert, you are all having a collective conversation and discussing and talking and laughing, and you have come together and found a way to transition into that co-regulated state with the ones at your table. And you can have that with your partner. And so if you can give yourself that three hours to be like, okay, this might feel uncomfortable right now, but like, we're going to get there. Let's see where this goes. And if you're going on vacation with them, three days, please, three days. Now, the last step to reconnecting with your partner rather than feeling like a roommate is vulnerability. When I say that word, you might think of a bunch of different things. You're like, well, I'm vulnerable. I know what that means. I've, I've read Brene Brown's books. I love that girl. Like she's my home dog, you know, like Trust me, I, I get it. Like she's baller, home girl, home dog, whatever you want to say. Anyway, vulnerability is the thing that we fear saying. Vulnerability is the thing that we fear others will judge us for. We fear that we will hurt others. We fear that it will disappoint someone. We fear that someone will have a judgment, opinion, or emotion about whatever you're about to say. And so you hold it in. I cannot tell you how many, I would probably say every single client, Every single client of mine, I walk them through what it looks like to have a vulnerable conversation with their partner. And it is the absolute craziest thing because we have chosen to spend our lives with these humans, like live with them. Like at some point you're going to know when you've got a really bad stomach ache and you've got some explosion going on in the bathroom. Like that's how intertwined you are. Yet you can't say the thing. Why? Because you're afraid of how they will respond or you are afraid of hurting their feelings. But vulnerability is the most beautiful place to gain 
or regain connection. So when my clients share things with me, I look at them and I say, have you shared that with your partner? How does that feel to think about sharing that with your partner? Oh my goodness. Fear. Like, mm -mm, unfathomable because of the fear within your brain that gets ignited. Maybe you fear it not going well and you don't want it to be shut down or you don't want to be ridiculed or you don't want to be hurt. That's a whole different story. That's where we would start with, I really want to share this with you, but I'm really afraid to share this with you because in the past when I have shared things with you, I feel a sense of hurt or there's fear or like that's where to start, right? Even if you're, you're scared of saying the thing, your partner may not even know that you feel that way because you're still bickering back and forth or, or defensiveness or you did this and you did that and did, 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 did. But the place to reconnect is through vulnerability of sharing the most deepest, darkest of feelings because that's why you have that person. And that person is there to have active listening and catch you when you fall and be able to just listen and, and support, not fix. And it is a shift. It takes time. But I've watched it over and over again with my clients. Their partnerships rise and their partnerships are stronger, more honest, more vibrant, healthier than they've ever felt. They're connected. They're closer because they have this piece of vulnerability and this trust and the ability to share things and express how they're feeling than ever before. Because that is when that true connection exists. When you don't feel like you have a roommate anymore, when you do feel like you can share even the hard stuff. And I've watched it over and over again. I have to tell you, when I first started this work, especially with what was going on within my own life, there was a deep-rooted fear. This was years ago that I didn't really share. I just kind of witnessed and observed and allowed each client to be their own individual client and journey. And it, it wasn't my journey, right? I had my own partnership. But there was a deep-rooted fear that when supporting individuals into learning how to regulate their nervous system, as I did, the same thing within their partnership would happen like it happened with my partnership. Because when I became regulated and when I started holding boundaries and when I got to the place of taking care of myself and saying, Jonathan, I, I need you to do the same. Like, I need you to be able to take care of yourself. I have to take care of the children and it's time for you to kind of step up in that aspect of your life. Things fell apart. He, he wasn't happy. He was, it didn't go well. And so I feared that that would happen with my other clients too. And it's been quite the opposite, which was hope. That's what I had hoped. Like that's what I, what I wanted. And, you know, through my own journey, I was like, Jonathan, I am right here. Take my hand. We'll do this together. Like whatever support you need, like we will get you that support, but you need to be willing to do it. And for him, he couldn't. He just, he, could, he didn't have it in him. But the way in which I see partnerships rise every single day is the most incredible, beautiful experience. And I feel so blessed to witness and watch that. And I'm sharing that with you because I want you to know if you're listening to this and you feel hopeless, 
it's never too late ever, like ever. I have clients who've been with me for years and they have supported their partnership and moved through this process. And yes, it has taken time. But if you look at the totality, people are with their partners for 30 to 50 years at times, like 40, 50, like 60, on and on and on. A year or two, it may feel like a lot, but if you zoom out, that's not that long. That's a bump in the road. And the shift and dynamic of moving from disconnected roommate to connected, loving partnership can happen. It can through both supporting your own mental health, through both regulating your own nervous systems and through both having the communication, carving out time for one another and sharing that vulnerability piece of life. And it's doable. I want you to know it is possible. So have hope, have faith and take one small step every single day and trust within where you're at in this life, the craziness of, of children and toddlers and babies, and just keep trusting, keep breathing. And until next time, XOXO, Dr. B.